Mark 1.35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. This is the word of the Lord. We flee silence. So wrote uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German um, pastor and uh, martyr, of course, uh, towards the end of the Second World War, back in the 1920s. We flee silence. And he went on to say this, we race from activity to activity to avoid having to be alone with ourselves for even a moment, to avoid having to look at ourselves in the mirror. Bonhoeffer was commenting on, um, he wrote it in the 1920s, in Germany in the 1920s, as he looked around him and he saw this sort of newfangled thing called cinema catching on. Uh, the moving image, and how everyone was suddenly rushing to the cinema and being distracted by this new thing, this moving image. And into that he wrote, we flee silence. Uh, we found yet another way to distract and amuse ourselves so that we don't have to ever spend time with ourselves. Um, and if Bonhoeffer thought he lived in a loud world <laughs> dominated by moving image uh, back in 1920s Germany, we live in a louder world now and uh, far more image. We swim in a sea of sound and uh, image. Um, A sea formed from a dozen streams of uh, media pouring into our eyes and ears from the moment we awake to the moment we sleep again. But as Bonhoeffer noted, and others have noted too, it's a sea of our own making. See, his point is that we seek noise, Um, we seek distraction, we seek amusement because we're frightened by the silence, Um, frightened perhaps of what we would find if the sounds and the images ceased and all we were left with for a moment, for a time, was ourselves. Might it be that uh, we fear too long with ourselves, we fear um, uh, spending time by ourselves um, because of what it is that we might see of ourselves, who we are, uh, who and what we have become, as one writer said, the good, yes, but also the bad. Uh, things about our lives, things we would love to change. One person said this, in the silence nothing about us remains hidden. Everything bubbles again to the surface. And so we, to use the language of one author, amuse ourselves to death. And uh, I was thinking about myself. I'm not particularly a social media um, person at all, in fact. Um, but um, that's not because I'm particularly virtuous or, or, or it's just, I'm incompetent. But um, <laughs> it's the, the point is more that um, I am... Um, 
I'm a huge board game fan, so I find myself distracting myself to death in, in times when, and, you know, clearly having times of you know, amusement and, and, and distraction is not a good thing. But I find so often I find myself, you know, if I'm thinking about something or worried about something, I will just distract myself rather than think about it. Uh, and for me, it's a board game geek, because I am a board game geek. Bonhoeffer goes on to say that more than fear of what we might see and hear from ourselves, we, f- we fear even more deeply what we might see and hear from God. And so he says this, not only are we afraid of ourselves, of uh, discovering and unmasking ourselves, but even more we are afraid of God, that he might unmask us, that God might draw us into partnership and do with us whatever he wants. Isn't that a striking thing to say? God might draw us into partnership, and we're, we're fearful of that. We fear, in a sense, the voice of God and what he might call us into. Into our lives, God speaks. Of course, we know the nature of uh, sin is to avoid that word, and one of the most effective ways of doing that is to submerge yourself um, in a sea of a thousand other voices uh, and to live before a thousand other faces. So you can sort of subsume the Lord into the background noise of your life. Um, As Christians, those of us here who are uh, Christians, we've seen and we've been captivated by the sight and the sound of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've come to see and accept that the sight of Jesus and the word of Jesus brings transformation, that listening to him brings wholeness. The The power of sin in our lives has been broken, but we know its presence still remains. And there is still, is there not in our lives, the pull to push God to the periphery. And one of the ways we can do that is to submerge him in a sea of a thousand other sounds. uh, Make him one face uh, of a thousand. We're in a series, as Dan was saying, on Christian habits, disciplines that Christians through the ages have found to be just very helpful in helping them to fix their eyes and their ears on the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight we come to silence and solitude. And here's a key point, I think, and if I can put it slightly paradoxically, it is this. It is not solitude and silence that we seek in solitude and silence. Rather, it is the face of God and the sound of his voice. There's a sense in which, of course, these things are always with us. But it's as we turn aside, even for a short time, from the sights and sounds of our world, then we find, I think, that the sight and sound of him who is greater than our world can be more greatly seen and heard. It is striking, I think, how often Jesus does this. Again, as you read through the Gospels, it might be a great thing to do. um, Well, it would be a great thing to do over uh, Lent. Uh, We see this so so often. Jesus does just this. He turns aside from the crowds and the clamor uh, to seek afresh his Father's face and his Father's direction. We read this right at the start of his ministry. We'll just touch on this briefly. Back in Mark 1, um, page 1003, it says, uh, we had it read to us, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Early in the morning, uh, I guess that's before the sights and the sounds uh, crashed over him, uh, before the calls and the pull of voices clamoring for his attention, before um, all the faces of the day and the decisions of the day, he, uh, 
He goes uh, to, to, to one side, a solitary place, and he prays. He meditates, he prays alone, uh, so that his father would have uh, the first word of the day, uh, the authoritative word, the guiding word, the identity-giving word out of which he would live, so that his father's face would be the first face he sees, if I can put it like that, uh, the authoritative face overall, the face that he wants to live before uh, that day. And he returns, it's interesting, isn't it, the very next verse, he returns um, recentered, that's slightly clumsy, but you know what I mean on his mission. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. From that moment of silence and solitude, his mission is clear and clarified again. And so he sets out. And so here then is a, uh, uh, a truth for us. We seek uh, solitude so that we can better live before the face of God. Uh, we seek solitude so that we can better live before the face of God. I, it seems to me we live before many faces, don't we? Um, we have the faces, of course, of the adverts and the advertising that surrounds us. Um, and the, that is a particular face, maybe the face of uh, so-called perfection, uh, or the face of consumerism, or the face of whatever it is you want to call it. But that's a certain type of face that exerts a certain type of pressure on us, that says a certain type of thing. To us, we uh, live before the face of our peers, and that brings with it a certain type of pull on us, a certain kind of message, a certain kind of shaping. The, the face of our friends, the face of our family, the face of our boss, uh, and the list is um, endless. It seems to me that one of the things that a period of solitude can do for us is it allows us to refocus on the one gaze that matters, as it were, the one gaze that, that should shape us and, ident- and define us, uh, the, one, the one face before which we truly live. And that, of course, is uh, the face of God, the one gaze that truly frees us. There's a little expression, um, I don't know why it's still in Latin, but it is still in Latin, um, that people talk about corab deo, um, and, and that means to live you know, before the face of God, before God. Christians live coram Deo, before the face of God. And one writer said this, coram Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. And he went on to say, it's a phrase that literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing, and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious over here and the non-religious over here has failed to grasp the big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious, or none of life is religious. We live Coram Deo. And the point is we always live Coram Deo. That's the point of this author. That is true 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That, 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 that gaze of God is to be the, the, the gaze that we live under and live out of in every aspect of our life. So, and hear me here because this is important. It is not that in solitude I enter the presence of God. Okay, I'm in the presence of God through the work and, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm always before the presence of God. I'm always Coram Deo. But what happens is, I think, in solitude, we get a prolonged moment away from all the other faces that surround us. Um, 
and, and seek to shape us, and we get a chance just to be reminded of the one gaze that counts, my heavenly Father's. In other words, it's a, it's a chance to ask ourselves the question again, whose gaze am I living under? Whose gaze is shaping me? Whose gaze is giving me my identity, as it were? The gaze of um, people or the gaze of the one who, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has uh, uh, accepted me and protects me and is always present with me by his spirit. Um, So often, I think, when we live before the gaze of other people, we are diminished. But when we live before the gaze of God, we are transformed. But the question then becomes, well, how then do we know fully the God we live before and the gaze under which we live, the face that is turned towards us in Jesus Christ? How do we come to know this more fully? Well, it is with our ears. So if in solitude we uh, seek better to live uh, before the face of God, in, uh, we seek silence so that we can better listen to the word of God. We seek silence so that we can better listen to the word of God. It can be foregrounded in a noisy world. And silence, I think, takes two forms, doesn't it? Uh, one form, of course, is freedom from outward noise and distraction. So there are times when it is good to free ourselves of phone and TV and whatever else it might be and be in a quiet place. But I think we also have to recognize that uh, silence, uh, we we, we need some freedom from internal noise too. Uh, Switching off the phone is only half the battle. And um, if you're anything like me, I think that's the easier half of the battle actually. Uh, There's often a cacophony of inner noise um, thoughts and worries and hopes and tasks. And it's not that we want to remove those, because in a sense we, we might want to, it's precisely those things that we might want to bring before the Lord. And the Lord's not saying, you, if you, you must come to me without any thoughts and worries and fears on your heart. That's not what he's saying at all. He wants us to come to him with them and bring them to him. It's more about, again, <clears throat> not allowing them to dominate this period of time. Allowing the Lord to put them in their place. I was reading um, one uh, writer who said that often he'll use Psalm 131 as he begins to pray, before he prays, precisely to try and do this, precisely to put his, um, to slightly still the inner noise. Psalm 131 starts like this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Isn't that lovely? Picture a child that hasn't yet been weaned and wants uh, milk and food and they're agitated and they're crying and they're restless and they're, you know, this, that and the other. But after they've been weaned, fed, there is a contented uh, stillness. And he makes the point that as you meditate on Psalm 131, it is sometimes that inner noise comes because, um, my, uh, you know, because of the opposite of that, that, those opening verses of Psalm 131. It's actually because our heart is proud, so we've become in, absorbed in ourselves. Or our eyes have become haughty and we're chasing after things that are too difficult for me. We're trying to control the world or a situation or a circumstance in a way actually we can't control. And nothing brings anxiety like trying to control something that you can't control. 
So there's a sense in which what the psalm allows us to do is just to recenter on the sovereignty of God. Uh, move ourselves from the center, consciously enthrone God over my life and my world, put him back in his rightful place. And that will begin to quieten the soul. There's a great hymn uh, called uh, Be Still My Soul, The Lord Is On Thy Side. The language is slightly old and perhaps quaint, but I'm going to read this verse anyway because I think it's good. Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Isn't that a fantastic truth? He's going to guide the future as he has the past. Don't think that you can, you know, control the future. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them when he dwelt below. In other words, let the sovereignty of our good God still the strivings of our soul. And then what? Then we're in a position, I think, to to listen. But I want to suggest not listen to the silence. And here I think, and uh, I'm not an expert on these things, but here I think we need to be slightly careful of um, some of the forms of mysticism that um, still surround us and and, and are in some aspects of, of the church. Mystics, I think, are mistaken to believe that God wants to communicate himself in the absence of his word, um, in, an, in an unmediated communing with God. Uh, I don't think God is most truly known in the experience of inner silence. Um, I don't think in periods of silence we're trying to enter an inner realm of silence where we transcend the sense of self, as one writer put it, and we try to experience a God beyond words. Because we know that our God is a God of words. And God said, and it was so. And he came to us in the person of his son who is the word incarnate. He makes himself known to us in his word and through his word and supremely in the word made flesh who spoke. Here again is is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I think is is really helpful on this. It's quite a long quote, but I think it's worth quoting. He said this. He said, There is an indifferent, even negative attitude towards silence, which sees in it a disparagement of God's revelation in the word. Silence is misunderstood as a solemn gesture, as a mystical desire to get beyond the word. Silence is no longer seen in its essential relationship to the word as the simple act of the individual who falls silent under the word of God. And he goes on to say, we are silent after hearing the word because the word is still speaking and living and dwelling within us. We are silent in the morning because God should have the first word and we're silent before going to bed because God should have the last word. We are silent solely for the sake of the word, not to dishonor the word, but rather to honor and receive it properly. In the end, silence means nothing other than waiting for God's word and coming from God's word with a blessing. We're silent so that we can 
fix our hearts and minds and eyes on uh, the Word of God so that we can foreground it in the, the loudness of our world. There's an excellent chapter in Tim Keller, who's an American pastor. He's written a book on prayer and how he talks about keeping truth and experience together. And he leans on the work of an English theologian um, uh, called John Owen many hundreds of years ago, uh, who's really helpful on this. And Owen says that uh, in silence and solitude, we're not seeking to empty our minds, but quite the opposite. We're seeking to have the space to really exercise our minds. He says this, It is to have our minds really exercised with delight about heavenly things, the things that are above, especially Christ himself who is at the right hand of God. So that's what we're wanting to do in times of silence and solitude, exercise our minds with delight about heavenly things. And to do that, he says, we need to fix our minds on God's truth in such a way, Owen says, that truth gives way to love. And he's really big on this, that knowledge must give way to affection. So he says this, where light, that is sort of God's word, leaves the affections behind, it ends in formality or atheism. Where affections outrun light, they sink into the bog of superstition or they dote on images and pictures or the like. In other words, he's saying we're not to settle on knowledge of the word that doesn't affect the emotions, but nor are we to seek an experience that doesn't flow from and is not rooted in the word, but rather we're to dwell on the word in such a way that knowledge gives birth to affection, that knowledge has its right outworking in the warming of the heart, the warming of uh, the soul. He's not saying, I didn't think that, that by the way, um, that the law cannot impress upon us images and pictures and words. Uh, it's more that those things are, are, are tethered to the word. They're not, they're not coming through a deliberate pushing out of the word and some sort of subconscious uh, state. He's saying that these things are flow from the word and are tested by the word. And here we return to the discipline of meditation, about which I'm not going to say a huge amount because I spoke on it a few weeks ago. And if you want to hear what I said, uh, I think it should be on the, um, the, the, um, the internet. Um, but this idea of meditation, that mulling on the word, uh, which, as um, somebody said beautifully, to meditate on God's, God's word, meditation lies midway between study and prayer. I love that. Meditation is when we are chewing on the Bible in a way that is not Bible study. I'm not necessarily there trying to work out exactly everything a passage means and execute it. I've, I've sort of done that, as it were. But I'm taking that truth that I know from God's word, and I'm just mulling on it, and I'm chewing on it. I'm between study and prayer before it, before it moves into prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm just... We use the illustration of bread. You know how bread becomes sweet only if you leave it in the mouth for a little while and chew on it. So it is with the God's word. We mull on it. We chew on it until it becomes sweet. And we mull on God's word until it becomes our word. Until it's, until it's, it's where we hear the Lord speak it to us. And it, it interacts with our affections. Finally, briefly, it's striking. Uh, Bonhoeffer again, um, who uh, said much of this in his um, s- sermon on Psalm 62, um, I think. 
He said, also, note that silence and solitude are not anti-community. They build up community. So periods of time when we're by ourselves and silence or solitude, those times are really important, he said, for the community that you're a part of. Because, of course, we're, we're shaped... Um, uh, by the face of God, as it were, uh, as we recognize that we live before his face, his gracious face, and we're shaped by the word of God, and we're shaped in, in part to better play our part in the Christian community. So time spent doing that allows us to then be free to play our part in the Christian community. As we reflect on God, we are better able to reflect God to one another, to the community. There's a sense in which we've been created to be formed by our Christian community and to play our part in forming it. And if we're going to play our part in forming it, we need first to be formed uh, by the God in whose image the community is to be formed. So we can only do the latter if we step away in silence and solitude at times to be reformed and renewed by the gaze and the word of God. And so in times of silence and solitude, we seek to create space. We seek to create the space, physical space, um, social space, um, oral space in the sense of um, away from noise and distraction, so that we can come afresh before the face of God that shapes and defines us, that is always there but can get easily lost behind a thousand other faces we live before, and chew on God's word, spend time mulling on it until it is sweet, until it touches the heart, and then shaped and renewed and refreshed and reformed, we join uh, community again to be formed by it and to play our part in forming it with uh, the vision and the, the knowledge of God that we've got in that time, silence and solitude, there are other streams, of course, as we gather here, we are formed and renewed by God, but also in times of silence and in solitude. Uh, and it would be a great way to think, I think, as we close this, and I'm certainly, as I've thought about this, uh, really, at this level, perhaps for the first time in my life, actually, um, to think about how to build this in in a more coherent way into my life. Periods of silence, periods of solitude, doesn't have to be a huge amount of time. But Christians down through the ages have found it to be hugely significant. And as I've read a little and thought a little, it strikes me indeed that it is a hugely significant thing. Silence and solitude to come afresh before the face of God and time to mull on the word of God such that we can be embraced afresh by the God we worship. Amen.